Well, even the greatest chefs in the world who make the most exquisite foods are at the mercy of those who serve the food. We've all had the experience of being perhaps at the nicest restaurant in town with some of the best food on the menu, yet which has some of the worst service. Often our experience at restaurants hinges on whether or not the waiter or waitress is having a good day. The food can be great or even mediocre, but if the service is great, we will often find ourselves going to that same restaurant again and again. Why? Well, it is because if we receive good service, we often want to experience it again. We enjoy being served well. That waitress or waiter who knows exactly when to fill up our glass of water without even asking, who's right there to give us help and guidance on the menu selection, what should we get today? What would you recommend? Making sure that we always are, have what we need, but yet is not too intrusive. You've all had that waiter, right? The one who seems to be on the opposite side, who keeps asking you, do you need anything? Do you need anything? Do you need anything? That I find just as much of a nuisance as someone who never seems to show back up after taking your order. Great service begins with the attitude that the server is there to serve the guest. That the server is not the center of attention, but the one being served. Great service is when you don't even notice that the server is there. They seem to just swoop in, do their work, and leave. In those cases, when you experience a good waiter or waitress, when you receive good service, uh, the table seems to be unified. The conversations are flowing. Everyone is happy. No one is grumpy. Nobody's upset that their drink's not filled or, or their napkin is missing or their utensils seem to be gone. We've all had the experience of the opposite. When no one seems to be able to find our waiter, when we're just wanting to get the check, we seem to be held ransom at this stinking restaurant. We just want to pay and go home. Let us go. (laughs) Or perhaps the waiter or waitress who seems to be a little too interested in our own conversations and wants to eavesdrop upon them. Like they're looking for the latest gossip in town in order to spread. Service is essential to the success of the restaurant industry. Of course, through the COVID-19 pandemic, we have seen the service industry become pressured with the lack of workers. If you've visited a restaurant recently, you will most likely have experienced new waiters and waitresses, which often carries over into poor service, though not necessarily always. We know that service is essential to that particular industry, and it is essential also to the church. Where there is good service in the local church, there is unity, joy, and commitment to others. But where service is lacking, there is only bitterness, division, and a lack of care for the needs of others. Many of us have great preachers, and some would say that Charles Spurgeon is probably the greatest English speaker ever to have preached God's word. Behind the great preacher of Charles Spurgeon was an army of great deacons who served Tabernacle Church with great service. 
You think of someone today in our own contemporary culture like a John MacArthur who is a tremendous preacher who's able to give countless hours to the study of preaching of God's word. Brothers, sisters, do not be so naive to not think that that Grace Community Church is not filled with a plethora of great and godly deacons and deaconesses who serve that body faithfully week in and week out. To allow for these great sermons. Behind every great preacher, behind every great church is great and godly deacons. Find a church who's disdivision and divisive and bitter, and I will show you a church that does not have biblically qualified deacons. And so, Paul picks up his pen to write to young Timothy on this particular issue. That in order to set in order the teaching ministry of the church, Timothy needed to give attention to who was preaching God's word. He needed to give attention to the elders of the church, the overseers, the preachers and teachers. But he also needed to give equal attention to who were serving in the body. Because if we are to heal where there is division and discord, we need the unifiers to come in. And those who are particularly gifted in the life of God's church to bring unity where there is disunity are biblical deacons. And so this morning, I want us to think about and consider together what is a biblical deacon? What makes a deacon? How are we to find one if we were to look for one? And so as we consider that this morning, I want us to just kind of Begin by reading or looking together at 1 Timothy chapter 3. And consider what God's word says about deacons. I'm going to begin reading chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 8. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also a great, reward, great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. What's Paul's point? Well, I've broadened the point of this sermon a bit to not only this text, but to, to encompass what the whole New Testament speaks about the subject. And I've summarized it in this way, that Jesus Christ gifts his bride with godly deacons who serve the tangible needs of the congregation in order to bring about the unity of the body. We need to understand that first and foremost, that it is Jesus Christ who gifts his church with godly deacons. But he doesn't just gift them with deacons, he gifts them with godly deacons, qualified deacons. In other words, we ought not to affirm quickly, but slowly. We ought to understand not to just look for someone to fill a slot, but to find someone who is biblically qualified. And if we don't have one, then pray that God would provide one. 
I think also we see that throughout the New Testament, in particular here, that, that, that the function of a deacon, the very word deacon means servant. They serve the tangible needs of the congregation to bring about the unity of the body. This is, of course, coming from Acts chapter 6, what many understand to be the sort of prototypical uh, picture of deacons in the life of a church. In Acts chapter 6, we are told that there was a division among the churches uh, there in Jerusalem. There was a division in the church over, and, and, and get this, brothers and sisters, over racial issues. We thought that was only a 21st century issue. No, 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 no. Racial issues has been historic issue. It's, it goes all the way back to the beginning. And so there's this racial divide in the church where the, 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 the Greek-speaking uh, women uh, widows in the church, the ones that weren't full-blooded Jews, were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And, and so the, the, the apostles say, listen, we can't, we can't give up preaching and teaching God's word and the study and preparation of it in order to feed feet. We, we need some waiters. We need to hire a waiting staff to come in and to feed and to provide the tangible needs of our church. And so we need to appoint, and he told the church, we need to appoint men of good repute, that is godly men, above reproach in order to attend to this. And it's so fascinating that the congregation there in Jerusalem picks not a bunch of Jews, but a bunch of Greeks to deal with the problem. In other words, there's a unity even among the selection of who they pick in order to solve. And what happens? Well, what happens in Acts chapter 6 is that the, the saints are unified and the church explodes numerically. That, that, that when there's disunity, the gospel is hindered. But where, where deacons are functioning faithfully, the gospel is able to flourish. And so there in chapter six, chapter 6 of the book of Acts, we see sort of this prototypical deacon. And what's so fascinating is while Paul spends a lot of time on the qualifications of deacons here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he doesn't really talk about their function at all. In other words, there's a lot of latitude given to the local church on what it is exactly a deacon does. But there needs to be a lot of attention given to who a deacon is. And so often we focus on what he does rather than who he is. Well, man, he's a Mr. Fix-It. He can fix any problem. He can go in and he can fix doors and he can turn, turn on lights and he can turn on the heat and he can do a lot of things. That's not Paul's focus. Paul's primary focus is on his character, on who he is. And so we see here in this text and this morning, I want you to see three things. Um, how do we know when we see a deacon? Well, number one, first we see that deacons are blameless in character. Blameless in character. Secondly, we'll see this morning that deacons are godly servant leaders at home. If you're not leading at home, you can't lead in the church. Thirdly, we will see that deacons are recipients of great rewards. So we see these three attributes of a deacon, blameless in character, godly servant leaders, and recipients of great rewards. Number one, blameless in character. Now, to be clear, I do not believe that Paul is saying here in this particular text that they are perfect. Not at all. 
But he uses the word blameless, doesn't he? Look there at verse 10, the very end. Who prove themselves what? Blameless. So there you go. It's a biblical word. Get over it. Deacons are blameless in character. The standard is that they are not blameworthy. Similar to the, the elders. Remember last week we considered that the elders were to be above reproach. In other words, they, any accusation that was lobbed their way would be diffused because they lived in the light. They were morally upright. They lived in such a way that no false accusation could stick. And similarly here in verse 8 we see that deacons were to have a, a similar self-mastery over their own lives. Look at what he writes. He says, deacons likewise must be, and he rattles off a list, dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. Each of these refer to self-control. In other words, he has self-mastery over what he does, what he says, what he puts into his body, and how he spends his money. He's under a control. He's not a man who's not easily given into the winds and waves of those around him. He's dignified. He's upright. He's respectable. He, this is a similar word to above reproach. There's dignity in his moral compass. Not only that, he's self-controlled, we are told. Or, or rather, uh, look here, he, he is not double-tongued, rather. In, in other words, he doesn't have, he's not given to literally double talk. This is similar to, to gossip, though it's not limited to doc, gossip. You know, so fascinatingly in the life, my experience of local church life, is that deacons often are the ones who perpetuate gossip in the life of the church. They're, they're, they're worse than little schoolgirls talking about the, the, what's going on in the church. But Paul here says that deacons are to be a cul-de-sac of gossip in the life of the church. They are to be the place where gossip comes to die. But more than that, they are also not to be given into double talk. In other words, their yeses are to be yeses and their noes are to be no. They're not to say one thing and do another. Need to be, they are to be a reliable hand. When they are told to do something and they say, yeah, I'll do that, they do it. Man, it is so encouraging that we have men of such repute that, w- that we can say, hey, take care of that. Can you take care of that for me? I don't need to worry about it and be like, I don't know. No, 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 no. The God has raised up men. When you ask them to do something, they do it. Well, not only does he have self-mastery over his tongue, we see that he has mastery over his drinking Paul again identifies drunkenness as a particular issue among perhaps the leaders there in Ephesus. And so again, as he did with the elders, he identifies this issue not addicted to much wine. Again, uh, the Bible does not support a teetotaling position and a total abstinence of alcohol, but rather a warning that alcohol can lead to a addicted and ruined life. In other words, they ought to drink in moderation and take seriously the addictive and damaging effects of alcohol. In the end, they must be sober-minded. To be sober-minded is to have one who's, who's not looking for the next buzz. 
Perhaps that might lighten some deacons up. I don't know. But, but nonetheless, uh, we need those who have clear minds and clear thinking. I remember a number of years ago thinking particularly about this. Imagine you've been uh, sipping on some wine and you've got the breath of wine on your, on your uh, mouth and, and then uh, on your breath and then you get the phone call that, that one of your members has been, uh, their daughter's been killed by a drunk driver and there you are with that uh, sweet aroma of alcohol upon your own breath and you show up at their doorstep. We ought to exercise wisdom in, in, in the ways of this world. This world is obsessed with alcohol, obsessed with numbing their, the pain of this world. We ought not be quickly given into these things, but yet at the same time, we must not prohibit where the Bible does not prohibit. We must have self-control and self-mastery over these things. Lastly, here in this particular list, in verse 8, he says that they ought not to be Greedy for dishonest gain. First and foremost, we need deacons who, uh, Paul says, that, that are not quickly given into the lust of money. He'll deal with that later in chapter 5, where he says that money is the root of all evil. But I, but I believe that, that, that dishonest gain is, is more than just money. It could be the praises of men. It may be the congratulations of others. It might be that everybody thinks you are amazing. And you go about that in a dishonest way. A godly deacon is one who is above reproach in all of his dealings, both publicly and privately. In his business life and his personal life, he is one who is above reproach. And so a, a blameless deacon is one who has self-mastery over the what he spends and what he says and what he does. But also notice in verse 9, he has a settled conviction about what he believes. They, the deacons, must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. The language here, holding on to. Not that it slips through, but it's a firm grasp upon what? The mystery of the faith. In other words, he isn't to be a recent convert. He needs to know the mysterion, the mystery of the gospel. He needs to have a good grasp of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he is doctrinally orthodox. He knows the statement of faith. He not only affirms it, he can defend it. We don't need novice novelty or novice in the diaconate. We need men who will stand strong and know the truth and possess an unwavering conviction to the truth once for all delivered to the saints. Again, we're not looking for a scholar here, but someone who is settled. This is what Paul says, who has a clear conscience on the matter. Well, why does Paul focus on that particular point? Well, Remember back to chapter 1 and verse 5, he says that the aim of our charge that is confronting false teaching is this. It is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. A deacon who has a wounded conscience and a bad conscience is no good to know anyone. He won't stand for the truth. He'll be even easily given into temptation to do what best suits the situation rather than doing what's right. They would be those that are driven by every wind of doctrine and are not a steady hand. What we need is men who are steady and steadfast. 
They're not quick to give in to false teaching or endless discussions, but are settled in mind and heart. They are a place where the endless futile discussions that Paul is dealing with here in Ephesus, where they come and die. No, 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 no. We don't have time to worry about and split hairs on these things. We need to focus on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and serving the needs of others. And this is why he gives such a clear exhortation that their mind is to be clear or settled. Their conscience is to be clear on this matter. But not only do they have self-mastery and settled conviction, we see in verse 10 that they need to, be, they need to stand tested and approved. Look what he says in verse 10. He, he says, and let them, those deacons, also be tested first. Let them be tested, proven, tried. Not quick tested then he says let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves what blameless this is similar what what paul will will exhort timothy later in the book where he says hey don't be quick to lay on of hands don't be quick to affirm Uh, allow them to serve without a title and see if they prove themselves blameless you know, there's a lot of folks in our, our world, sadly, in the church, that are hungry for power and position. And they, they consume people in their endeavor for power. And what we as a congregation, what Paul is exhorting us here, is we want to identify those who are serving well, even before and without the title of deacon. That's one of the things that the elders did in discussion of affirming our first set of deacons under our new uh, church structure is we began just to look out among the congregation who was already serving. But we weren't looking for people and giving them a job. We were looking for people who were already doing the job and we were just coming along and saying, yeah, this is the kind of thing we want to see perpetuated in the life of our church. You see the perspective Deacons, you ought to hold this list high as your daily aspiration. If you serve as a deacon in this congregation, uh, you ought to waver at, you ought not to waver at this, but you ought to shudder at it. Just as the elders must shudder at this tremendous list that is before us and the standard is high, we do not, we not lower the standard just to kind of help people jump over it. I love what Brother Chris said earlier in his prayer. He said, hey, this is just what you call all Christians too. And there's some truth to these lists. These lists seem like, man, these are the, the elite. These are the Navy SEALs of the church. Not at all. These are just the ordinary Christians who are being set, set apart in a particular way in the life of the church. But deacons, you ought to hold this list high. This ought to be before your eyes. Again, Paul is not exhorting to perfectionism, but to holiness. Our deacons have faults. Our deacons are fallen. They are sinful, just like your pastors are. Strive, brothers and sisters. Strive for this kind of holiness in your life. Strive for the purity and self-mastery. Strive to know the word better and thus remain settled in your convictions. Congregation, we ought to affirm such candidates that meet these qualifications. It is so tempting, brothers, sisters. I, I've been there. You've probably been there. You've been in that business meeting. You've, you've, you've maybe been in that discussion about a deacon candidate. You've seen churches that go awry in this area. What do they do? They look for the best businessman in town and make him deacon. 
Well, they, he may be given to some shady practices and why he's such a good businessman. Just because the world sees them as good does not necessarily mean they are good. There are so many faithful deacons serving in the life of our church. So many people serving faithfully. And we want to come along and affirm these qualifications. We want to hold this as the standard. And we ought to also pray regularly for those who serve that they might continue to be and pursue godliness. If this is the standard, then we ought to pray that they live according to this, that the enemy might not tempt them to fail in these ways. Remember, brothers and sisters, that we, might, that we must test and then approve. This is key. We must be slow. I, I have failed as a leader often in the past because I've been quick to affirm a brother who was not quite ready. And it blew up in my face. And so as a congregation, we want to be slow. We want to think well. And I think, importantly, we want to we pry into the brother's life and not just assume that because on the outside everything looks good, that on the inside everything is as well. We want to be quick to look and identify those who are already serving without a title and then, and only then, brothers and sisters, affirm them in the life of the church. Christ has gifted us, not with unblemished deacons, but with those who are blameless, whose character is of proven worth. These are the men whom we want to. These are the deacon. This is the character we want to uphold. But, as we'll see, character isn't isolated. It, it isn't insulated. It isn't isolated just to the individual. Notice here in verses 11 and 12, it also shows up in the home. That deacons are to be godly servant leaders at home. But notice what he says there in verse 12. He says, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. Just as Paul exhorted the elders earlier, listen, if you, if you can't to the elders, he says, listen, if you can't lead at home, what makes you think you can lead in the church? And similarly to the deacons, he says, listen, if you can't serve at home, if you're not a servant leader at home, then what makes you think you're going to be a servant in the church of the living God? Must manage, he says, their children and their households well. Now, in this particular context, the household is beyond even the children. This would include maybe servants that would have been in the household. They were a management. They were a manager of the home, one who led as a servant in the home. And again, we have that phrase, a husband of one wife. And I'm just going to deal with this very quickly. I dealt with it last week. I've dealt with this at length. I think those who say that if you've been divorced, you are automatically um, not allowed to serve as a deacon are wrong. And here's why. That is not what Paul says. It may be the case that you're disqualified because you've been divorced. But what does Paul say? Does Paul say that if you've been divorced, you can't serve as a deacon? No. What does he say? Let deacons each be what? The husband of one wife. Again, that word, that means a one woman man that he is committed to his wife. And the Bible gives 
latitude and license for divorce and remarriage in very narrow cases of sexual adultery and abandonment. And so the New Testament already speaks to the reality and the, the permissibility of per, that in the case of death, in the case of spiritual and sexual abandonment, there is permissibility for divorce and remarriage. Now, if the, if the gentleman just, you know, said, hey, I, I'm tired of this one and I'm ready to move on to the next model, uh, you know, a newer, latest model, and, you know, that's the, that's the story, well, then, no, I think wisdom would dictate, no, brother, you're in sin and you need to repent. The idea, again, in this particular verse is faithfulness. Has the brother been faithful to his one wife? Of course it precludes polygamy. Of course it, it precludes uh, unbiblical divorce and remarriage. But it also calls us to fidelity. And I feel that's the question that's lost and lacking. We're so focused on disqualifying brothers who've been divorced, we don't ask brothers who've been married for 25 years, hey, dude, have you been faithful to your wife? I mean, she's the one that hasn't left you, but have you been faithful to her? These are the questions we ought to ask. A servant at home before a servant of others. Well, you'll notice that I jumped over a verse. Well, because I wanted you to hear my thing on verse 12, because you might shut me off after verse 11. Perhaps. So here we go. I might offend some this morning. But I shall preach what I believe the Bible to teach on this matter. Verse 11. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Verse 11. Does it allow for female deacons? Or is this verse about deacons' wives? Consider what Paul says in verse 11. He says... Their wives, likewise, must be, and he lists, the wives, likewise. Does Paul teach in verse 11 that women can hold the office of deacon? In short, my answer is yes. Amen. And here's my answer. To begin with, the word there in verse 11, look at verse 11, don't look at me, look at verse 11. Their wives, their, that, that prepos, or that, uh, that phrase there, their wives, is not in the original. There is not there. It was added by the translation committee in order to help smooth out the translation. Thus, it literally says, wives likewise. And clearly, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to say that Paul is writing to all the women and all the wives of the church. Hey, all the wives of the church, you need to be dignified and so on and so forth. Not at all. And so to smooth out the translation, they added the word there, their wives, in reference to the male deacons of the church. Hey, their wives, if they're married, they need to be these things. But the second word, wives, can also be translated women in the original language. The word wife and women is the same word. And so only context dictates whether or not one translates it as wife or as women. For example, as we just saw in verse 12, um, the word gunas, uh, gunaikos, rather, for wife or woman is there in verse 12. And it's a reference clearly to a husband of not one woman, but of one wife. And so the, the context makes clear. 
Well, you'll note here that the translation committee here of the English Standard Version is wrestling with whether or not to have it their wives likewise, or should it be more accurately translated, women likewise must be in reference to female deacons. Notice here the footnote. They, they translate this as wives likewise or women likewise must be these things. The third thing we notice here in this particular verse is the inclusion of the word by the Apostle Paul of likewise. Every time he uses this word likewise, he's introducing a new category. Verse 9, verse 8, deacons likewise. Verse 11, their wives or the women likewise. He's using it as a marker to indicate he is addressing a new group of people. Fourth and finally, I and why I'm convinced that this passage is pointing to the inclusion of females as serving in deacons in the life of the church is because there is an absence of any reference to the wives of elders in verses 1 through 7. It seems very strange to me that Paul would, would be so concerned about the deacons' wives and not the elders' wives. Now, that my argument might say, it's, and again, this is not a strong argument, but, but the argument might may be that, okay, the, the, the deacons' ministry is more inclusive. It includes more, both husband and wife, whereas the elders' role as overseer is just sort of limited. I believe that the most obvious reading of this particular text sees both men and women as called, equipped, and gifted for the diaconate. One of the issues, particularly, as I'll, I'll discuss here in, in, in a moment, is to make clear that the deacon ministry of the life of the local church is not a teaching ministry. Thus, having female deacons does not go against Paul's prohibition of female leaders in chapter 2 and verse 12 and 13. You see, the problem for many of us today is that we have, wrongly we have wrongly identified the function of deacons in the life of the church as spiritual leaders when the biblical function is to merely be table servants. And I can think of a whole host of women who do that well. But beyond historical experience, in Romans chapter 6, in verse 1, Paul says this, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deaconess of the church. Not only do we see clear instructions from Paul here in 1 Timothy, but we also see in New Testament precedents that women served. Jesus himself were often surrounded by women servants. We see women often serving behind the scenes in the life of the local church in the back of Acts Maybe not functioning in a particular title, but serving, no doubt, in this role. We also find, outside of the New Testament, historical precedents in the very, one of the very first documents of the church called the Didache, in which there are instructions given to the church in the 2nd through the 4th century where female deaconesses serve baptismal candidates in preparation for baptism. And wisdom dictates that women were helping women, who, by the way, by the way, got baptized naked, who would help women prepare for baptism, have the women prepare the women, and men prepare the women. Wisdom would dictate doing that. But what about in the SBC? What about in the Southern Baptist Convention? Is this a new and novice teaching? Not at all. 
In fact, our great-great-grandparents would say, no, of course we have female deacons in the Southern Baptist Convention. All of our Southern Baptist churches from the very beginning had female deacons. Well, where did they all go? Well, it's because during the 1950s, Southern Baptist churches began to advocate and begin to undermine the sufficiency of Scripture. And they began to adopt a more business-like model for the local church with committees and uh, boards. And deacons began to function more like quasi-elders than they did as deacons. They were seen as the spiritual leaders of the church. And we're thankful for their service. But they weren't in their lane. And I would say that if our church functioned in that way today, I would not be an advocate for a female deacon. However, for the first 75 years of our denomination, both men and women served. Like-minded, conservative, Bible-believing congregations all over the United States today have female deacons serving in their congregations. Here at our church, we are very open-handed on this particular issue. Believe it or not, our doctrinal statement does not limit the office of deacon to men only. It does limit the office of pastor to men only. Because we believe that is in line with 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Consider in your own experience the countless women in our own congregation who function as deaconesses through their service to the body. Well, again, we are not going to be appointing female deacons today or anytime soon. But I believe Paul clearly speaks to this particular issue, and I think it causes us to pause and consider where are we following mere traditionalism rather than biblical exhortation. Regardless of where one lands on this particular issue, Paul gives us some clear exhortations to those who serve as deaconesses or those who support the work of their male counterparts, their husbands. So again, in the Presbyterian Church of America... They have female deacons, but they're not ordained. We don't, in the Southern Baptist Convention, ordain, and so we don't have an ordination. But they have them, but they just don't have the title. And so that could be one way and one approach to it. Nonetheless, we see there's a number of things numerated. Number one, not slanderous. That these women, whatever their function is, whether to be to support their husbands or to have their, their own sort of deaconess ministry, they do not use their tongues to cut others down, but build them up. They're to be biblically qualified. Just because they're female doesn't mean they're, they're necessarily qualified. No more than just because you're a male in the life of the church, you're automatically qualified. My goodness, I used to cringe when churches would, would pass out, oh, but it's time to nominate deacons. And they would print out a list of every deacon, 25 years or older, and they would say, all these men we ought to nominate. Not at all. Only biblically qualified. Sober-minded, not a drunk. One who's, uh, one who's not given quickly... To wine, but one who is settled in their convictions. It's both not only what they consume, but how they think. And then finally here, faithful in all things. In other words, these females are, are trustworthy in their tax, tasks. They're, they're, they're reverent. They submit to their husband's leadership. They exemplify the gospel. Just as we considered in chapter 2, they are these chapter 2 women who exemplify Christ through their godliness. 
They are representatives of Christ in all areas of life. The point, though, that we must take away from this is that deacons must be those who serve well in the home before they serve in the life of the local church. Again, we're not looking for those who have perfect homes, but who have well-ordered homes. And the question that we ought to ask a candidate is, are you leading well in your home? Are you a model of service and you, are, you serve, are you a servant in your home? We ought to consider those who have well-ordered homes. We cannot look past this in our elders or in our deacons. They must be well-ordered and thus affirm them. Third and finally here in verse 13, if you're still listening, you haven't turned me off. Deacons are recipients of great rewards. Oh, this is the this is the passage, deacon. If you memorize any passage, if you want one just to put in your rearview mirror every day as you're driving down the road, if you want one that you see every day, this is the verse you ought to have before your eyes. Look at it. For those who serve well. As deacons, gain a good standing for themselves and a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. No doubt Paul was dealing with a particularly difficult situation there in Ephesus. And Timothy was tasked to rally the troops in order to become servants. And, and some might say, hey man, I, I love this church. I love what you're doing, Timothy. I think it's needed, but no thank you. And Paul writes to Timothy and says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to give them this. I want you to encourage them with this truth that if they will step up to the line and they will give their life to the service of this body, they are going to gain some things. They're going to get a great reward. First, he says, they're going to gain a great, look what he says, a, a great standing. The language here is that of stepping up. This isn't stepping up to a bigger platform but rather a greater standing. They're going to be on firmer ground. They're going to be taking on an honorable task. In other words, they're going to receive the praises of King Jesus for their service in the life of the congregation. A good standing. Now notice here, he, he qualifies it by those who serve well as deacons, right? So I mean, if you're mediocre, sorry, you're out. But it's those who serve well, those who give their all to the ministry. He says, if you will sacrifice it all for the sake of the body, you will gain good standing. Brother, do you desire a good standing for yourself? A good reputation? Do you care more about what the world says about you or what Jesus says about you? Serve as a deacon and gain a good standing, brother. We also see the second reward is a great confidence. Look at verse 13. He says, look, if you serve well, not only do you get a good standing, but you also get great confidence in what? In the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Do you desire a stronger faith, a stronger standing in the faith? Do you want to you have a greater grasp on Christianity? Then serve. You know, it's fascinating. We think, hey, if I... If I want to be a great leader, then I need to be a great student. And there's truth in that. We do need to have education. We need to do study. But you know, I don't regret for one minute that my first job in the life of the local church 
was to come to the church every week and vacuum the carpets and change the trash. I believe that gave me a great love and perspective for, for the menial task of the life of God's church. That everyone's important. That it's not merely the one who preaches, though that is an important task. Paul says similarly in the church in Corinth that, look, we need everybody. Eyes, nose, elbows, knees, feet. We need everybody. Everyone has a place in the life of the church. And and there is something to be gained by you serving, brother. Do not think that you are taking on a menial, insignificant, unimportant task. Brother, if you serve as one of our deacons of this congregation, there is a great reward. And these aren't, I do not believe, these are future rewards. No, these are present rewards that you gain. Jesus talks a lot about rewards, and they're always in the future. They're always... Something to be received in eternity. Brothers, these are present rewards. These are good. I just want to say, if you serve as a deacon of this congregation, thank you. I could just brag on our deacons for just a moment here. I'm not going to call them out by name and what they did. But just this week, each of our deacons served the preaching of the word by allowing me to give time to study so that I wasn't having to run around doing things that they did. There were ways that your deacons, just this last week, took tasks off the elders that they could give themselves to preaching and teaching and not be distracted with the tangible needs of this congregation. They did it. They weren't double-tongued about it when you asked them. They did it. They did it uprightly, not not greedy for for praise. They didn't say, hey, pastor, look what what I did. And and, and I know for sure they didn't come rolling in here this morning telling everybody. And I know that because I asked some people about some of the things they did. And they were like, wow, we wondered who did it. We thought you did it. Nope. Your deacons did it. We are indebted to the kindness that you, deacon, show to this body week in and week out. Look, we know that you do not do this task for the praises of men, but you you do this hard work for this great reward. Work for the rewards that last for eternity, not for the ones that will be gone tomorrow. Do not be ashamed either of the task that you do, big or small, whether it's sweeping or changing trash or making sure our children are safe, or or helping change tires on the church van. Whatever it is, do it for these great rewards and know that the Lord sees the way you serve His bride. Man, you serve someone's bride, you win them, don't you? You you serve a bride, you, you win, right, in everyone's book. When you serve the bride of Jesus, you win in Jesus' Brother, do you aspire to the office of pastor or the office of deacon? Serve not for the title, but for a great reward. Serve for the right ways and for the right reasons for God's glory. Brothers, sisters, we ought to see that Christ rewards those who serve his bride well. That ought to motivate each and every one of us to look not to ourselves, but to those around us in whom we might serve. We should aspire to serve as deacons. It is a noble task just as it is for the elders. 
Deacon ministry is hard. It is time-consuming, and it is often a thankless job. No one is going to pat you on the back when you do your hard work as a deacon. But Jesus will reward you, and that should be enough. Brothers and sisters, let us remember that Jesus has gifted his church with godly deacons. Let us not be given into ungodliness. Let us be given into those who are blameless. Let us identify those who are already serving well, without title, without funk, already doing the job. Let us find those who are leading well at their home, also in the church, and let us do so with these great rewards in mind. When we consider serving the body of Christ we find no greater example than what we read earlier in Mark chapter 10. But whoever would be great among you must be servant. The word is deacon. And whoever would be first among you must be deacon of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be a deacon, or be deaconed, rather, to be served, but to be a deacon. Deacons, you're no more like Jesus than when you're serving as a deacon in the life of the church. Because Jesus says, this is why I came. I came to be a deacon. I came to be a servant. And I came to serve all. Let us remember that. Let us pray that God would raise up more.